Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnick, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader. So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership Coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Our guest in today's episode is Kate Lido, an organizational design consultant, coach, and product advisor. Kate has more than 25 years of experience in leading product teams at companies like Yahoo!, and Moo.com, and consulting companies like JP Morgan, Boeing, the Financial Times, or even UK's Ministry of Justice. Furthermore, Kate is an awesome author. I highly recommend checking out her book, Hiring Product Managers, Using Product EQ to Go Beyond Culture and Skills. And she's writing on her blog, katelido.com, and her medium, kalido.medium.com. Kate, Anthony, and I dive deep into Kate's journey from the early days as a product manager at Yahoo!, to then moving to London for Moo as a head of product, and beyond that, working as a consultant with really, really awesome outstanding startups, nonprofits, and private companies. We speak about her experience with imposter syndrome and how she battles it, but also how she benefited from it. Kate sheds light on the emotional and human side of product management and organizational change, and she shares her lessons learned on how to drive change successfully, what works, and what doesn't. It's a really heartfelt conversation full of insights, so let's dive right in. Hey everyone, it's time for another Teams at Work episode. And today we have with us Kate Lito. Hi, Kate. It's wonderful to have you. Hello. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. I can't wait for all the insightful learnings we can gather from you today. And as the first question, of course, full of curiosity, when I get to speak to someone who has been leading product at Yahoo and has been head of product at Moo and shares wonderful content at Mind the Product and on LinkedIn and in all these other places that I'm trying to follow you. My first question to you would be really what brought you to product? What was leading up to it? How did you become a product leader and a product person? Oh, it's such like the winding story, you know, kind of like everybody else, I assume. It's the best ones. Yeah, I know. It's like, I don't even know where to begin. How far back do I go? When I was a child, I was very curious. No. So I guess I'll start with a long time ago, before the first bubble of the internet bubble. So probably before, you know, when many of our listeners were still... 1.0. Yeah, we're still in school. I worked for my very first startup. That was actually in Chicago. And so I learned all about this crazy wild world of internet startups and started to get involved in product then. At a very early stage, I was also very involved in marketing and communications. You know, it was one of those roles where you just kind of do a little bit of everything. After that, I went, um, I survived the bubble. The company survived the bubble somehow, some way. So that was a good experience in itself. 
And at the same time, I started going back. I went to grad school at Northwestern and outside of Chicago and built up a whole new network of folks, which took me to Yahoo directly after school, after grad school ended. And at Yahoo, I really started to understand more of kind of like the structure and the theory and the methodology of products and the importance of talking to customers because Yahoo is very, very, very focused on that. But I was still coming in from more of kind of a product marketing side. And I gradually moved into products at that point. And the cool thing about working for a company like Yahoo is that, you know, there's so many different options. There's so many different things you can do. So they brought me from um, Sunnyvale, where the headquarters was, to London to help with the release and launch of kind of a new search, local search. Back in the day when local search was a thing. Oh, my God. Can't remember. Yeah, I helped launch that at Yahoo. And from that, I got my really good first taste of, I guess we'd say, product leadership and what that was like. And working in a different way, you know, cross-functionally, internationally, trying to bring new products to market outside of this local search as well. And my product journey just kind of it really went from there. Once I got into Yahoo and started to see what product's all about, and it was still very, you know, still, I think, a bit young then, because at that time, everybody in product had to have an MBA. And while I went to grad school, I didn't have an MBA. I went down kind of a different course, more marketing focused and customer focused than a straight up old MBA. So it was still kind of a, a bit of a leap for me to get into product at that point. But it just kind of happened, which I think is what happens with a lot of us product folks. You know, you don't really plan it. You don't really, I didn't go out looking to get a product job. It just kind of happened. There was a need and I liked the stuff that was involved in doing the work. And so I just kind of started doing it. And from Yahoo, I ended up working at Moo.com. Back in the early days of Moo, there was, when I joined, there were about 20 people and I was the first product person. <laughs> it was one of those great roles where you're like, you're the first product, I'm the product manager and the head of products, right? So like, yep. <laughs> it was one of those things like, we're going to make you the head. And by the way, you're the only one. So it was kind of building up a uh, product from there and working with a new CTO that was coming in at the time and a great, amazing brand that was already established and a great community and following it was a cool opportunity to not just work with like, you know, the e-commerce website, but also the physical product. And my product remit was physical and digital. So I got to work very closely with like a, a physical product designer who's just amazing and a great design team on how to make, you know, everything we're talking about online real. And I really enjoyed that and building up kind of a, a product, really starting to understand product in a very different way at that point, because I went from going from someplace big like Yahoo, where you had all this support and all these kind of luxuries to Moo, where we really were just getting going, but had a lot of passion behind it. And did you ever at any point in time during those like kind of first stages or the early stages of your career, did you ever have the feeling this may not be for me or did you ever doubt yourself in that regard? Yeah, of course I did. You know, I think it was a lot of imposter syndrome even at that point. And personally, I've always kind of pushed myself very hard to do a lot of stuff and to do a lot of stuff very well. And so I think actually when I was at Moo, that really started to bubble up and I started to take on too much and started to have more kind of emotional reactions to things that were happening. 
And this was kind of my first moment, I think, of realizing that like I could learn all of these great tactical things, all these great frameworks, you know, and I could really focus on them because at the time that's really what we focused on in product management, you know, how to do a roadmap. You know, what is this lean thing? At the time that was just coming out, right? How do we kind of bring that in? How do we make sure we're working agile and all these different great, what I now call kind of technical skills of product management. And I was focused so much on those that I wasn't taking care of myself and I wasn't really able to kind of build up what I now call the human skill side of things. And that was really starting to show at different points in my time at Moo. And I think because of that, so I stayed at Moo, I was with them for about three years or maybe three and a half years. And I decided to go and kind of, I was going to do my own startup because that's what everybody was doing at the time, right? Everybody in London, and this was 2011, was out starting their own company and doing their own thing. And I had my idea on what I wanted to do, but wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it. So I started consulting to pay the bills a couple of days a week. And at the time, there weren't a lot of people in London doing that from the product perspective. So I remember writing articles for Mind the Product back then about, you know, what it's like to be a product consultant and how to kind of stick to your guns as being a product consultant and the day in the life of the product consultant, all this stuff. It was really interesting because it wasn't really done much back then. Now it's extremely common. But in doing that, I started working with a couple of different smaller VC firms who wanted to help their product or their companies, their young companies, understand what product is from the get-go and how to think about product and how to hire for product and how to kind of build with the product DNA from the beginning. So I started doing that a few days a week to pay the bills. And it just kind of went from there. And I realized I really enjoyed consulting, you know, and that I had a lot of diversity in my clients and what I was doing. I had a lot more flexibility, which is something I didn't really have I didn't have as much before, of course, working a full-time gig. And um, it also gave me time to kind of do some more kind of looking at myself. <laughs> Actually, it gave me space to take a look at me and work on me a bit and realize, you know, some of these different things that maybe I've been ignoring in terms of like taking good care of myself and making sure I'm getting rest and understanding some of the things that I'm challenged by in work are things that are personally challenging, things that I could work on personally and develop personally it had nothing to do with learning how to do a roadmap, you know, that there is like this other space of study and learning that I really enjoyed kind of figuring out and it made me feel better and it made me like what I was doing better. So from there, I've just been consulting in many different ways over the last decade now. I've been working for myself, which is pretty cool. And probably about you know, I've kind of, I've gone through that ride of you start out, I started out doing some consulting that I, for small organizations, went to big companies that wanted to learn how to operate like small companies, especially in products. And then I began to realize a lot of my clients, well, we were starting out maybe a meeting, we'd start out talking about something quite tactical or operational. The conversation quickly turned to, you know, okay, for some reason, I just don't feel like my boss likes me. And we're not going to get anything accomplished here because you know, my team's not motivated. You know, suddenly the conversations started out surface level, very tactical and became very personal. And I realized that's probably about five or so years ago. And I didn't feel quite equipped to handle those conversations. So I did a coaching course in London, probably about five or so years ago now. 
And I didn't intend to become a coach, but I wanted to understand some of the tools that they had so I could bring it into my consulting. And it's interesting, you know, the last five years or so out of that, I've started talking more about like the emotional side, the human side of product management and how important that is. It kind of opened my eyes to a different way of thinking about work and a different way of like what we should really be focused on, you know, somewhat less tools and frameworks and much more around, you know, building up our own emotional intelligence and being able to have really genuine and authentic conversations, you know, not those that become overly emotional, but we can understand where the emotion's coming from and how that can be kind of a superpower for a product person in itself. So that's a very long-winded explanation of kind of how I've gotten to where I am today. No, it's really, really interesting because I think I sometimes listening to very experienced leaders, I'm really amazed how eventually people end up in this perspective of like, it's all about the human tissue. Like if we want to get work done well, and if we want to not burn out and thrive and grow, we always kind of like, almost like want to avoid dealing with the human tissue, but eventually we'll like all end up there anyways, because it's the most complex of them all, it seems. So it was really, really interesting to kind of see your approach and your journey towards it as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I took another coaching program course not too long ago through Berkeley in the States. And they have this great saying that it's, it's human to human, right? Everything we really do, it's human to human. And I think that's so important to keep in mind no matter what we're doing. Couldn't agree more. And Kate, I think we're going to unpack all of that, the role of coaching, the human side, the emotional side throughout the episode here. But I'd love to just quickly pause. And I know from reading your content online, and and I follow you on LinkedIn, I am definitely one of those people that comments on your posts and just says, great stuff, because I do think it's great. And I think it's just, it's hyper relevant. And I think I think the emotional side of not just product management, but but the emotional side of work, all of the human side of work, I guess, has become a little bit more, I hesitate to use the word mainstream, but just more more prevalent over the last couple of years. But I'd love to pause for a second and ask you, because I know that it's not just the individual to individual that you focus on, but you focus on product teams, but also, you know, the larger organization. So I'd love to just hear more about your general approach to your work, I guess, the consulting work you do, but maybe how it ties to what you've learned about product leadership over time. Yeah, in terms of organizations that I work with, you know, not surprising to hear a lot of organizations are going through massive change, right? And they have been for quite some time. And I think many of them learned kind of the hard way back in 2020 that they needed to be more adaptable and they needed to be able to change and be responsive to market and world events that they had just not anticipated, right? So a lot of my work before 2020 was helping organizations become more agile and I'm using quotes around the word agile, but wanting to become, you know, going through agile transformations and all of this other sort. At the end of the day, I really boil that down to organizations having the ability to be adaptive and to be responsive, right? And I I don't focus as much on the methodology. We could be using agile, we could be using lean, it could be what, you know, whatever it might be, but I'm more focused on kind of what that means to the organization and what that means to the people within it. Because basically in order to go through this kind of change that a lot of companies need to do, there's a lot of stuff within the leaders that needs to change, within the leadership teams that needs to change as well, you know, in terms of how they even think about strategy, 
how they think about communicating with each other and meeting with each other and checking in with each other as a leadership team, having kind of a cadence of meeting and communicating that maybe they didn't have before. And one that is more responsive, that's maybe more on like a monthly or a quarterly basis than on an annual basis. So as part of my work, I work with leadership teams, you know, cross-functional leadership teams that want to go through this type of change. And it often can be rooted in market change or wanting to change for employees or whatever it might be, or just out of basic necessity these days. But it's helping them kind of on this journey and tying it to the way they think about their company, the way they think about their strategy overall, and even longer term, you know, maybe three to five year at the very most, more around three year kind of vision for the company and breaking that down into what does that mean annually? What does that mean quarterly? What does that mean monthly? How can we check on that, check in on that weekly and helping leadership teams kind of get into that? that cycle of work and thinking. And as part of it, helping them kind of develop some more of these human skills, you know, becoming more reflective. So making retros part of a leadership team's way of working. It all sounds very basic, but it's it's things that teams don't, especially at that leadership level, don't take time to do. And really struggle to maintain, I think as well, right? And to iterate on. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you have somebody like me in there who's saying like, you're paying me to be here. So this is what we need to do. We need to have this meeting every month. Are we in? And getting some commitment up front seems to help. Yeah. So, you know, and helping them in terms of communication. And then from a lot of it, when you bring a team together to actually become a team, because a lot of times they work within silos, their leadership team or an executive team, again, I'm using quotes, sorry, folks who are listening, who work in silos and trying to help them become more of a team and operate as a team for an organization that changes a lot of kind of personal or that causes a lot of like need to create some personal change as well, you know, on how they communicate with each other, how they think of their own jobs, you know, and their own roles in an organization, how they work with their own teams. So the work that I often end up doing on a larger organizational perspective starts with the leadership team and then can branch down into individual and then individual and then kind of departments within an organization as well. It's really hard to do organizational-wide change. Like, I got to say, I've been doing it for a while, and I don't know if I know any company that has been a complete success at it. So I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of being really honest about expectations and the outcomes of it. And finding small ways to get it going. As we often do within product, it's creating small experiments within these teams as well. What can we try? How can we adopt a new mindset of trying new things, of experimenting and failing even as a leadership team? And what does that look like? So it's building in these different mindsets and different kind of, in many ways, pieces of what we do as product people into an organizational perspective and an organization that wants to change. And I'd love to follow up on this and go like a tiny bit off script because it's just so, so important. And we have so many conversations within our team and also with the extended community about exactly this question, right? Oftentimes, it's never a problem of people not having great ideas about how to improve things, but it seems to always be very difficult to actually do that in a meaningful way. So maybe to follow up question, what you what you just referenced, have you seen any good ways to tackle fears around change. So when you kind of 
noticed there is pushback in teams, there's pushback in the organization towards specific ways of working or towards specific change. If there is any, I know this is very specific probably to each and every topic and each and every change, but if there is anything that you came across that kind of you always, when you feel people are a bit afraid or you sense anxiety that you kind of go to. And the second question related to it is the other way around when you have uh, newcomers and kind of like new ideas that kind of also want to improve the ongoing processes, improve the ongoing system. But when there is a bit of impatience, like how do you make sure that people are not getting overly impatient around change as well? How do you not overstress the system that already kind of like rolls in a given way, in a given manner? So those two topics I feel like come up over and over again. Yeah. I think the first question was more around how do we get organizations or teams to actually feel more comfortable in kind of trying new things and taking risks. And that's hard no matter what. I'd say the first thing is that the team needs to feel if you want to call it psychological safety or trust or whatever that the phrase is, um, the concept is that you choose, they need to feel it's okay to fail, right? And that in itself takes a while to get to for a lot of teams. So often it's, I've worked with teams to create maybe within a space that they identify that there's need. You know, we'd like to create change here. Maybe it's the way that the team is meeting or the way the team is thinking about their strategy or whatever it might be. And having some kind of obsession or exercise, you know, work where they can identify some small changes that they can make. I just call them small experiments, you know, and actually set them up as team experiments. You know, we're going to try to meet in a new way because we're not communicating well and we're not aligned on what we'd like to do, right? So it's getting a team to actually, uh, and a team member to write down what is the change they'd like to make? What's their hypothesis? And actually using kind of an experiment template even. What's a hypothesis? What's the change they want to see? How are they going to try to do that? How are they going to check in? And how are they going to know if they're quote unquote done or ready to move on to a new experiment? So I think it's often creating a space where the team can identify one areas that they're not comfortable with for whatever reason and give them some space to actually create these really small, like what I call micro risks sometimes, you know, what's this micro risk that this team is comfortable in taking and ensuring that they've actually thought it through enough and written it down. You know, it's in a place where it's not just talked about. It's like, Oh yeah, we should do that. You know, blah, blah. It's actually something they're going to follow up on and see if they've made progress or not. And if they haven't, then that's just part of, you know, that's a learning. It's moving these things from success and failure to learning. It's interesting because some clients push back on that. Like, yes, we want to learn, but we don't want to get it wrong all the time. And we don't want to make big mistakes, right? That could affect our product, our, our place in the market, our, our place with customers, our reputation. And I totally get that. But that's why we start small. You start small, create micro experiments, get comfortable with micro risks, check in on them. Don't let them fade away. You have to have some discipline with this. And that is often where a coach can be helpful, you know, to make sure that the team is operating on a cadence and can and will check in and start to build up some confidence that way of like, okay, it's okay that this didn't work. We're going to try it this way. And if it didn't work, ensuring this is where leadership is really important as well that members of a leadership team are not going to come down on a team if something didn't work out, right? That there's, they also are kind of on this, 
this change trajectory of realizing it's okay if some of these things don't work out. We're all good. We're in a safe space. We're going to continue to make it. So it's a long process to get a team comfortable with that. You have to be resilient. You have to be committed. You have to have leadership buy-in who's going to continue to support. And you have to have a team that's ready to be a bit curious and a bit creative in trying something new. That was the perfect segue, Kate. I think you said, and that's where a coach can help. And my question to you is, and I know you have an article with the same name, Everyone Needs a Coach. Why do you believe everyone needs a coach? It's it's obviously a belief that I think the team here at Bunch shares, given the fact that we're trying to create a digital coach. But I read that article. I love that article. I shared that article. And I know a few community members did as well. But why is coaching so important? Why is the coaching mindset so important? But more than anything, why does everybody need a coach, in your opinion? Yeah, that article, just to, as a side note, I co-wrote with Barry O'Reilly, which a lot of folks may know is author of Unlearn and Lean Enterprise and a lot of other great things. So why does everybody need a coach? I think, let me tell you why I have a coach. Maybe we should start with that because I, of course, have a coach. I've had several coaches. And what I get out of having a coach is I get somebody who is a sounding board for some of the challenges I have. I get somebody who questions me and my thinking and to not make me feel bad. You know, it's not in a negative way. It's often in a thought provoking manner. Right. So I was texting what's happening with my coach because my coach is in the States and I'm in the South of France. And I had a question or I was running into, I was going to go into a meeting and I wasn't quite sure about a proposal I was going to make in the meeting. And I sent it to my coach. I'm like, I'm like, this is what I'm thinking. And she responded right away. She's great. And she responded right away. And she's like, I'm wondering why you have this belief and where is that coming from? And it's not something that I had to respond to her right away, but it prompted my thinking, you know, and to like, oh yeah, why am I coming at it that way? It also, with coaching, one of the things that I get out of it is that it helps me think of different options because often we think like there's one way to do something. And I think the great thing about having a coaching mindset is we realize there's so many different ways to approach a challenge or an opportunity. So my coach helps me with that as well, helps me realize like it's not just one way or the highway. There's actually so many different ways this could work. I also really like having a coach because it feels like there's somebody in my corner, right? That I'm not in this alone. They're not my best friend. That's not what they are, but they're there to kind of help me figure out a lot of things and help me make the most of where I am today and what I want to become. So it just feels like I've got like a cheerleader and I've got my own secret weapon, not so secret weapon in this case. So those are some of the things that I get from a coach. I think in the times we're living in now as well, as, as a lot of us are continuing to work remotely and continue to work individually, I think having a coach, from what I've seen in the people that I work with, who are my clients, it's having somebody who hears you and listens to you. And there is that human on the other side to help you feel less isolated and alone. So I think there's become a different aspect to coaching now that perhaps we didn't have before. It's that human to human contact and connection that if nothing else is listening to what you're saying and asking you questions back and helping you progress your own thinking. One of the challenges that I have in talking about coaching, especially within our product world, is that Everybody needs a coach, but also a lot of times everybody thinks everybody wants to be a coach, which is cool. 
but we all have different kind of spaces. So one of the challenges I have is explaining what kind of coach I am, I think, or what I focus on versus there's discovery coaches out there that are amazing. There's um, more specific kind of team coaches and agile coaches. There's OKR coaches these days. There's like everything under the sun as a coach. So I sometimes think it's challenging. Well, everybody needs a coach. It's it's a challenge for the client these days to figure out what kind of coach they're looking for. And one of the challenges I have is, is conveying that we're all a bit different. And one of the big things you have to do as a client is figure out what kind of coach you're looking for and who suits you and your needs. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's obviously a, a symptom of coaching exploding and going mainstream and it being accepted as something that's just helpful all around. And I think what I love about everybody needs a coach is that it there is an implicit sort of redefining of what leadership is and who deserves a coach and who can have a coach behind it. Because I think at the end of the day, it is sort of work in general, at least this is a belief we share here at Bunch or, or we have here at Bunch or we hold here at Bunch is work in general has just become a little bit more human over the last couple of years, in particularly with COVID and all of that, it's been expedited. But I think just in general, this, and I'm, I'm sort of segueing to human skills here and another article you wrote about human skills, it's a symptom that I think coaching has become more accepted, but I think also the impact of coaching has just become more accepted. But I also think it's this, it's the role of human skills. And I guess OKR coaches and sort of strategy coaches aside that are maybe dealing with more technical topics and technical methodologies that are specific. I think I would love to hear your take on why human skills and maybe, you know, the coaching that kind of comes with it, why human skills are so important and why why do they play such a special role in your methodology? You hinted at it at the beginning of the conversation, obviously, but what are these human skills? How do you define them? And why are they important to work these days and not just product work, but work in general? So human skills, in my mind, are how we do our work as product people or anyone else. I wrote a book that came out about a year ago around how hiring product managers, but it wasn't just about how to hire product managers in a five-step process. It was how to hire people and think about building a team based on not just what we do, which I think of as technical skills, like our roadmaps and our OKRs and all of our amazing frameworks that really kind of make up the essential foundation of product management. So that's what we do versus how we do it, which is the human skills, which is everything from adaptability and resilience and leadership, creativity, curiosity, emotional intelligence, things like self-awareness, emotional self-control, relationship building and management. All of these things, in my mind, fit into this space of human skills. And they're just as essential, if not more, in my mind, than technical skills, especially as we get to a certain point in our career. And I started talking about human skills much more after my first coaching course in London, probably about five years ago or so. I came out of that, and I, I remember sitting in my front room at the time, my flat in London. And I was going through a lot of product blogs, you know, just stuff that I hadn't read in a while and getting caught up on things. And I realized everything we were talking about in our community was around these technical skills, how to build a great roadmap, what's an MVP look like, how to do A-B testing. And all of these things are really important, but nobody was talking about the human side of things. You know, nobody was talking about like, what happens when maybe you don't feel like you're really the smartest person in the room <laughs> or you don't belong in the room and have a sense of imposter syndrome, or maybe you're ready to erupt in a meeting and maybe you're, you don't understand where these emotions are coming from. 
but you know you'd rather not, but you'd like to understand more, you know? So all of these things are real world scenarios, certainly things I'd experienced and wanted to understand more and felt that if I could improve my learning on them, I would become a better leader, hopefully. So that's where I started writing about human skills, you know, particularly in product management, because that's my background, really, and why they're just so important to really helping you bring yourself, be really authentic at work, and doing it in a really healthy and well way, and helping your career in a way that probably not a lot of us, certainly I at the time, didn't think of, and giving space for that. I think we could go on like this topic of coaching mindset and how coaching is helpful and valuable to all of us for hours. But I also think that given the breadth of content you also share and the insights, I would love to check on another very interesting and very important topic as well, which is imposter syndrome. Another type of question or concept that we, I think, got to learn over the past couple of years more and more. And it's really, really kind of difficult not to come across it. So when we discuss topics that are important to new managers in our community as well. It's one of the, I mean, top three topics, I think that comes up over and over. And you have written a series on this and I really recommend to all our listeners to check it out. We are going to link it in our show notes, of course, but kind of to cut to the chase after you've dove into the topic. And I would love to hear also your own kind of relationship to the topic or how you got to discover it. The most important question, of course, in the end, what are kind of like the top takeaways that you would see now molded over and having thought through it for quite a while now, how can people really overcome their limiting beliefs? And what have you seen work as a coach as well? Yeah. Imposter syndrome. It's such like a big, complicated topic that has like this nice two word description, right? Imposter syndrome, not feeling like you belong or not feeling like you're good enough. And I felt what, before I wrote the articles, I felt that there was so much I kept hearing from my clients and friends and colleagues, you know, it's just people would say like, well, I have a bit of imposter syndrome, kind of like I got a little cold, right? It's a bit of imposter syndrome that I'm working with. But I didn't feel like people really understood what it was and where it comes from. So that's why I started to do a lot of research into it, because I felt like kind of like the way we talk about burnout these days, it's become very popular and kind of a word and even coaching, you know, it's become kind of a trendy word, but do we really know what it is and how to go about or how it's maybe holding us back and how we can maybe change that? So that was the impetus to me wanting to do a lot of research around it. What I found, there's so much out there about imposter syndrome. You know, if you want, anybody wants to nerd out like I did and just go into like these numerous rabbit holes about it, it's, it's there for you. One of the stats around imposter syndrome that was interesting is that at least 70% of the population says they have imposter syndrome. And I was thinking about that. And at first I'm like, that's a lot of people. But then I'm like, what about the other 30%, right? <laughs> How do they, do they really not have imposter syndrome? What's going on with that 30%? So I'm really intrigued by that. But imposter syndrome was, the term was initially imposter phenomenon. Over the years, it has become known more as imposter syndrome, but it was identified as imposter phenomenon by two women researchers in the U.S. back in the 70s. They became intrigued by it because they realized a lot of their colleagues were very smart, you know, assertive, really driven women felt that they weren't good enough. And so initially, imposter syndrome was associated 
something more with kind of a female population at a certain age. And of course, over the years through research, we found that it's not just with women, it's in men too. And this is something that affects, you know, diversity in background, diversity in socioeconomic and gender, basically all of us. It's a universal challenge. And that a lot of it, you know, who the source of it is different for just about everyone. You know, it could be something that happened to you in childhood. It could be an experience you had as experiencing some kind of bias or even racism as a child and as a youth, as an adult even, that makes you feel like you're just not good enough. And so what we often do is we try to prove again and again and again that we're good enough, right? And I can totally relate to this. Coming into, you know, Moo as the head of product and the only product person, I felt like I definitely had to prove I was good enough. I remember in the interview for that job, Someone had said to me, you know, the, I asked, you know, what does a product person at Moo need to be? And the person said, well, you need to be the smartest person in the room. And I'm like, oh, that's just a bit of stress right, right there. But it was things like that where it's like, okay, I got to prove I'm the smartest person in the room again and again and again, day after day after day, and I'm not. So that was, for me, something that really built up imposter syndrome, which makes you go into overdrive, makes you really want to prove you can do it that you are good enough, that you're as smart as everyone else. And from that, we have a lot of kind of emotional and physical backlash, right? We get burnt out. We get fatigued. We don't give ourselves, you know, confidence takes a huge hit. Self-esteem takes a huge hit, self-worth even. And so some of the different things that I talk about in the article about how I dealt with my own imposter syndrome is really kind of taking a step back and thinking about what are these limiting beliefs? What are the things that are holding me back? What are the stories I tell myself? And talking through them with a coach or a therapist or a friend or even journaling it myself. You know, I've been working with coach and therapist for years now, and I'm so happy I have because I've built up these tools to be able to identify like, okay, so what I'm feeling right now is I'm not good enough. And I can automatically go into what is that story? What am I telling myself? Is it true? You know, how can I define and provide evidence of whether or not this is true? So let's say back when I was working at Moo or in any other kind of project I've been in, I don't feel like I'm smart enough to do this job or I don't feel like I have enough experience to do it. You know, even though I've been hired for it, even though the client thinks it'll work out really well, I don't feel good enough. So my first thing is, where is it coming from? What's a story I'm telling myself? Is it true or not? And then it's reframing. What would I do differently if this wasn't true? What would a different vision, a different future be if this wasn't true? And then again, bringing in this concept of small steps or experiments, little things that I can do to try to prove or to kind of move into this new direction, you know, this new vision of what would it look like if this wasn't true? Small things to try out. My micro risks come back here. And then it's following up on it. So in some ways, that's a framework in itself to think about what's the limiting belief? What's the story behind it? Is it true or not? Can I prove or disprove it? What could a future without this look like? And how can I start making some small steps? So that's about that's six different, six different tasks within the exercise to help you deal with limiting beliefs. Super valuable, though. It's super, super, super spot on and super actionable as well. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of mini coaching in the podcast there you go. <laughs> right there. 
Absolutely. Opportunity for coaching everywhere. We're all a coach and everybody needs a coach. And we got a little taste of it here today. But I would love to ask one of our, I guess, to take us home, really, because, I mean, we've touched on coaching. We've touched on imposter syndrome. I think we've touched on at least my favorite of all of the articles you've written. And we'll link them all and, and evangelize and push it all out there. But there's always a very personal question at the end for us, which is really, really important because I think it gets that sort of that the power of the reflective aspect of coaching. And it always is if you could go back in time right? If you could go back to the beginning of, let's say, let's call it your leadership journey in the broadest sense, or your journey learning about leadership and all of this stuff, what are the one or two or three tips that you would give yourself going back in time that you don't know? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, first off, I would tell myself to take a breath and realize, you know, as we often say, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. There's so much time ahead. I think when I was younger, you know, I started working when I was uh, my first full-time job when I was 21. So I started pretty young and I was just so wanting to conquer the world, which is great. That is like something we as youth, you know, bring to a job, just want to go get them, want to change the world. But with that in mind, I felt like I had to do it all now, right? So I think I've learned over the years that there's a lot of time. I still have a lot of time in my career over, gosh, that was 24 years ago, 25 years ago when I started working, something like that to age myself a bit. And there's still time to learn and grow and change. And I think the focus on learning versus feeling like I must achieve is something that I've really learned as well. That the more curious I am and open to a variety of outcomes, the more opportunity I create instead of putting myself on kind of a strict career path, which is what I think the younger me was doing. And I could definitely have achieved that career path, but by being really curious and being open to outcomes and, you know, really trying to learn and follow kind of this drive I have to learn new things, that that's taken me in new ways and it's taken my life in ways that I never expected. You know, I I grew up in the Midwest of America. I never expected to be working in San Francisco or in London and now and having my own business and living the way that I'd like to live in France. You know, it's who'd have thought. And it's only because I think not only, but a lot of it has to do to just being open to things and being curious versus being kind of that one track, one mind. And also this idea of the fact that, you know, we're all people, we're all human. And the work that product people do, they are, so it's people building products for people, right? And that any kind of conversation or dialogue we enter into is a human to human conversation. And I think once I started learning that later in life, I think that changed a lot as well, because I think my early management style, I would call it management versus leadership, was much more of kind of command and control. Like I'm this level, you're this level, you know, we're in a hierarchy and you got to do what I say. And you quickly learn that doesn't work. And so I think over the years, I've learned the importance of kind of being in service to others, but also that, you know, we're all in it together. And each of us is bringing something unique and special and different to help solve very complex problems. And the more we can appreciate ourselves, each other for that, I think the better chance we have at making some of the big changes in the world we'd like to do, or even, you know, just making the dent in the world that we'd like to. 
So I think that's what I'd like to have a chat with myself about. <laughs> Amazing. It's a great wrap up. It's I don't know whether we can actually build up on that. <laughs> that was um there's another way to frame that last question too if you were to have if you were to have a one-on-one -on -one with yourself, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you were to go back in time and have a one-on-one, -on -one, what would be some of the feedback you would give? I guess that's more of the technical version, but I always find that question to be more personal. I find it to be deeply reflective and I I don't think we should wait years and years to ask ourselves that question because I do feel like that knowledge compounds and I think that's That frequent check-in with ourselves is important. But thank you very much for sharing. And I think there's a lot of relevant stuff in there, not just in that last question, but of course, the entire episode and conversation. So much relevant stuff in there for not just product people. Again, I think a product is really deeply human. I think that's what attracted Daria and I to product building in the first place. You really are a tether between multiple domains. But at the end of the day, you're a human tether. And it's deeply facilitative and deeply reflective. But I think a lot of roles are becoming, as you sort of made the connection to organizations and sort of the broader context, I think a lot of organizations can benefit from the product mindset and all these human skills. And of course, back to the articles, we're going to be sharing all of your articles with everybody. And yeah, just deeply thankful for the conversation, the insights and for sharing everything with the community. Cool. Thank you very much, guys. I love conversations like this because it's an opportunity for me to be a bit more reflective, you know? Thank you for being so open as well and really sharing a lot of thoughts and topics that are probably really personal. Really, really appreciate it. And I really wish we would have more guests like you and more of these type of conversations amongst leadership teams and amongst people at work, right? Because oftentimes we focus on the task at hand and don't see that the drivers actually lie beyond that. And I think this conversation today really surfaced so many aspects of that layer and, and how important it is and how we can also influence it and how we can actually turn it into a learning journey rather than a, yeah, I loved how you phrased it into an achievement journey in that sense. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio, or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode, because we always have interesting guests who join us and share valuable knowledge as well as actionable advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think. And that's a wrap. We are your hosts, Daria Gutnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.